The consequences of COVID lockdowns and a war in Ukraine threaten a global food crisis. This is Brief Before Impact. Hey, welcome everyone. I am Matt Parker. Thank you for joining me this week. Today's subject and today's brief will be over a potential global food crisis as a consequence of so many events in the last two years since initial COVID outbreak following the supply chain disruptions and most recently with the war in Ukraine. So tonight we're going to cover a handful of things. First, discussing the issues of food insecurity, what that is and what are the causes of it. The recent increases of um, inflation for all of our commodity prices, especially everyone's noticing groceries and gasoline more expensive here in the United States uh, since they've been in the last um, three or four decades. And we're going to talk and break down how individual issues like the war in Ukraine, like COVID disruptions and the lockdowns and the subsequent supply chain disruptions have caused this potential food crisis in the next coming years. And additionally, finally wrap it up, what the United States can expect, and us, as most of you are living in the United States who listen to this podcast, what we can expect here at home and what our, our government and the international community is doing to get ahead and counter this food crisis moving forward. Let me take a quick ad break, and then we'll get to work. All right, welcome back, everyone. So I want to lay out a couple of definitions of what food insecurity is and what kind of price increases we've seen over the last 24 months. So according to Plan International, what causes food insecurity? The reasons for hunger and food insecurity are many and vary from country to country, but generally it is a result of the following. Conflict, poverty, economic shocks such as hyperinflation and rising commodity prices, and environmental shocks such as flooding or drought. The conflict in Ukraine has sent global food prices skyrocketing. A third of the world's wheat supplies come from Ukraine or Russia. Ukraine also supplies the world with sunflower oil, barley, maize, and fertilizers. But the ongoing conflict means that fields won't be prepared, crops won't be planted, and fertilizers won't be available. Now, COVID-19 also caused a sharp rise in poverty and inequality globally as lockdowns devastated family livelihoods. In many countries, pandemic restrictions also meant disruption to food supplies, slowing remittances down, uh, down from families overseas and halting of school meal programs. There's a steep rise in food prices are also creating immense strain on household budgets with the poorest families hardest hit. And according to the United Nations, 928 million people, almost a billion people, will severe, were severely food insecure already in 2020. And that was an increase of 148 million on the previous year. So before we break down the individual causes of food insecurity, keep in mind while we're going through all this, there are consequences to each policy effect. Thinking back of COVID. COVID-19, the data started coming out. Governments, including our own, the United States, decided to lock down to slow the spread, you know, to flatten the curve, if you remember those fun phrase lines from our public health officials. And then we all remember how cities and states in the country began to lock down and then finally reopen much later, despite data leading to what I would argue was a less severe lockdowns that were actually needed. The point I'm making is that those actions, those policies, then affected 
global supply chains. Then the, all the money that was uh, added to the monetary system in order to stimulate the economy is now having an inflationary effect on all of us, which we can certainly see every time we go uh, to the gas station or to the grocery store. Just want to keep those in mind. Policies have long-term consequences. We are currently living those out right now. Back to these issues. So first of all, conflict. Conflict is the biggest cause of hunger globally. It's responsible for 65% of the people facing acute food insecurity. So that's from Mali to Syria to Mozambique. Protracted fighting destroys livelihoods and forces families to flee their homes, leaving countless children, including girls, facing hunger. It also makes it extremely difficult and dangerous for humanitarian organizations to reach communities in need. It's estimated that over 14 million people in the Central Sahel countries like Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger are in need of urgent humanitarian assistance. Climate change. Climate change has contributed to food insecurity by changing weather patterns, such as rainfall, increased climate shocks, such as hurricanes, cyclones, uh, foods and droughts, which all have an impact on harvest. Climate change has also increased the prevalence of crop pests, such as locusts, which damage and destroy harvest. A quick note. In my opinion, this isn't an argument of what causes climate change, how, what percentage of human activity is causing it from fossil fuels or otherwise, or the natural changes in weather. I recognize my opinion is climate change is happening, and that's what we need to be dealing with. Certainly, the, addressing the causes is a part of that equation, but we, I think, I hope that we can all recognize that climate change is indeed happening, even if we disagree or argue about what actual cause is. And that climate change does, in fact, lead to global food instability. So last point is economic instability. Inflation and economic shocks has impacted the access to food for many people. Even if food is available, for many people, it's too expensive to buy reducing people's access to food. You know, Linked to the pandemic, many people have lost their livelihoods and income, again reducing families' ability to purchase food. Let me throw out this hypothetical situation. You're a small business owner. Say you, you own a uh, taco shop, and you are not allowed to sell those tacos during COVID because of public health restrictions. You can't afford to go on, so you have to go under, and now you no longer have an income. That business goes away. Uh, you get a couple of stimulus checks in the mail that gets you over for a couple of months, maybe. And then you have to go find other work uh, somewhere else because it, you just don't have enough money to restart that taco business. And so now you're not able to provide the same income that you were before. And because of all the stimulus spending that the government did, at least here in the United States, now there's an inflationary effect and gas prices and fuel and uh, food prices as amongst other commodities are all beginning to skyrocket to, you know, 40 year highs. And now you can't afford to pay for those commodities because you lost your job because of government shutdowns two years prior. Again, all these policies have impacts and we have to remember as at least the policymakers that we elect have to remember the data that they're, they're evaluating to make those decisions has to be based purely on the, the data available, the facts, and not some kind of political incentive. And sadly, I believe uh, that this was so much of the cause of the issues that we're seeing now. But back to global food crisis. According to the World Bank, record high food prices have triggered a global crisis that will drive millions more into extreme poverty, uh, magnifying hunger and malnutrition while threatening to erase hard-won gains in development. As of June 30th, 2022, this is just a couple weeks ago, the agricultural price index is 34% higher compared to January 2021. 
So that's just like in 16 months or so. Maize and wheat prices are 47 and 42% higher, respectively, compared to January 2021. Uh, rice prices are actually about 80% lower. So most food countries, food price inflation exceeded the overall inflation. For example, in the United States, what was inflation here? Like 7 8%, I can't remember the exact numbers recently, versus that's the overall inflation compared to food price inflation, I think is higher than 30 or 35. Again, it's been a bit since I looked at the last numbers. The point is that food and gas are the two highest uh, commodity, uh, the two high, the two commodities that have the highest inflation uh, over the last uh, 16, 12 months, or 16, 18 months. Now, again, according to World Bank, the globally hunger levels remain alarmingly high in 2021. They surpassed all previous records, as reported by the Global Report on Food Crisis, with close to 193 million people acutely food insecure. Nor That was nearly 40 million more people than during the previous high reached in 2020. The conflict and insecurity are identified as the main drivers of food insecurity. Uh, and they've been warned that the acute food insecurity could worsen in 20 countries or areas during June to September of 2022. So we've seen some extraordinary growth in the last two years. And according to the data being collected by these different organizations, the World Bank, that we could see even other regions, including 20 more countries, to even worsen than where they are now this summer, all the way to September 2022. Now, food prices were already high before. The war is driving food prices even higher. Commodities that have been most affected, wheat, maize, edible oils, and fertilizers. Global commodity markets uh, face upside risk through the following channels. The, the reduction in grain supplies, higher energy prices, just like gas and oil to move the trucks that move the actual commodities of uh, the actual food. Higher fertilizer prices and trade disruption just due to shutting down of major ports. Over the coming months, a major challenge will be access to fertilizers which may impact food production across many crops in different regions. Russia and Belarus are major fertilizer exporters, accounting for 38% of potassic fertilizers, 17% of compound fertilizers, and 15% of nitrogenous fertilizers. Now, fertilizer prices surged in March of 2022, up nearly 20% since January of 2022, and almost three times higher compared to a year ago. Now, following the start of the war in Ukraine, trade-related policies imposed by countries have surged, meaning that <clears throat> many countries put on uh, sanctions onto Russia and started limiting trade and such. Now, June 30th this year, 18 countries have Im implemented 31 food export policy measures affecting 5.5% of calories traded in global markets. In five countries have implemented six export-limiting measures. The point being, Russia invades Ukraine. The world essentially unites on the cause of Ukraine and punishes Russia for doing so by implementing uh, certain sanctions and, and uh, trade-related trade policies. Now those policies are having this uh, second and third-order effects onto the already issues of supply chains um, and fertilizers coming out of Russia and Belarus, Ukraine being a major wheat producer. They all are having this impact. And now the, especially the lower income countries around the world are going to be affected from a potential food crisis and food insecurity. So let's tease those out a little bit here now that we've kind of given this overview of what's going on. 
uh, from a potential food crisis. I want to highlight Ukraine and COVID and dig a little into how they are affecting this the issue of food insecurity. The war, and this is according to Reuters, the war has disrupted global agricultural exports from Russia and Ukraine. <clears throat> Two grain exporting powerhouses that accounted for 24% of global wheat exports by trade value, 57% of sunflower seed oil exports, and 14% of corn. That's from 2016 to 2020, data coming from the UN Comtrade. Now, in the eight months before the invasion, okay, so last year, there were 51 metric tons of grain passed through Ukraine's seven Black Sea ports, according to the United Nations World Food Program. Since the invasion, much of Ukraine's current export grain stock has been stuck in the war-torn country because of damage to rail infrastructure, closed ports, and Russian blockades in the Black Sea. Those blockages also mean there won't be sufficient storage available when the 2022 harvest comes in, according to the World Food Bank, or excuse me, the World Food Program. The shortfall could have... Um, have devastating consequences for many countries who relied on Ukraine and Russia for as much as half of their wheat imports from 2016 to 2020, including Egypt, who recently made a deal with India to help replace some of the 80% of the wheat imports which came from Russia and Ukraine. In Europe, the war in Ukraine has mangled major shipping lines through the Baltic and Black Seas, and several key European countries have also banned Russian flag vessels from their ports, blocking some Russian grains. The acute effects of the conflict have only added to global transport issues. In early May, a study of analysts from the RBC, Royal Bank of Canada, found that one-fifth of the global container ship fleet was currently stuck in congestion at various major ports. That's 20%. Global supply chain problems look set to worsen as China's COVID-19 lockdowns, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and other strains cause even longer delays at ports and drive up shipping costs. Kind of the bottom line is, Russia invading Ukraine at the time that they did was like there was a, a small fire that was kind of going out from COVID and the supply chain disruption and so forth. It was still burning, but it wasn't a bonfire like it was. And then Putin just threw a whole bunch of gasoline right back on top of it to keep those bad times going. This is having a global impact. This is not just an Eastern European issue, but rather it is affecting all these other countries who depend so much on whether it's the wheat or fertilizer coming out of Ukraine and Russia. So bringing this to uh, any of fellow Americans who's listened to the podcast, how will a potential global food crisis affect the United States? And what steps can we take to counter any type of global food crisis that will create regional instability that will affect you know, American interest. So let's dial into the first one. Will Americans actually be affected by this kind of crisis? Uh, according to just a CNBC, despite the prospect of continued rising prices, however, experts don't expect food shortages to occur here in the United States. Quote, it's important to realize that the U.S. doesn't import very much from Ukraine. This is from Joseph Glauber, a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute. Quote, we may see some shelves that are empty for various kinds of food products like we have for a while now as we recover from the pandemic. That's according to Scott Irwin, chair of agricultural marketing at the University of Illinois Urban Champaign. But I can say 
with some real confidence that in the United States, the average consumer is not going to see a shortage of bread because of what's going on in Ukraine. This is another topic for another day, but to me, one of the issues that was revealed from COVID is the necessity for America to diversify our supply chains, including where we import goods from and export goods to. If you remember the initial issue of uh, requiring like personal protective equipment for our folks that work in hospitals, as well as certain uh, antibiotics and medicines that are all being produced in China, and yet this virus was coming from China, and so that from a geopolitical perspective, we're in a bit of a pinch. To me, this global food crisis indicates the same point that we've already learned from COVID. Continuing on, uh, this is from data from The Hill, highlighted by Ned Rachmanino. He's a consultant for Commercial Diplomacy Matters. And he writes that in the United States, the building blocks of food production are under immense pressure. Over the past 18 months, Energy costs overall are more than 30%. That's according to U.S. Energy Information Administration. Agricultural labor costs have increased approximately 10% during the same period. That's from the Department of Ag, which will also find agricultural employment just now closing in on pre-COVID participation rates, meaning we're finally getting enough workers back into agriculture that we had before COVID. Adding to production stress, fertilizers are averaging a 30% price increase from March 2021. And that's with components like ammonia, more than double their top marks during the past 10 years. Uh, Potash, urea, and other fertilizer ingredients are likewise very high. Feeding the world is impossible without commercial fertilizers. So the sustained cost increases complete a perfect storm driven by energy, labor, and regulatory impediments. The issue is only deepened by situations like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, considering Russia is the world's top fertilizer exporter. So this is where he starts getting into some of the issues that America has domestically and how he recommends that we can, that those can be changed. So these are just a few economic factors making food production more difficult and expensive. The situation exposes threatened populations to even greater vulnerability because while ag- agribusiness energy, labor, and other costs in the United States have increased about 30%, food prices have risen between 10 to 20%, finding a loss scenario for multiple producers nationwide, and yet still creating disparity for communities abroad. Now, irrespective of politics, meeting a demand on a global scale requires adjustments to foster reliable supply and an importance of U.S. energy, agribusiness, and labor in this equation, it cannot be understated. Now, many of the immediate needs to balance this equation are manageable, if but for political will, and include the following. This is where he's going to highlight some changes that can be made domestically in the United States to counter this global food crisis. Number one, regulatory reform, permit permitting certainty. He's talking about the permits to like go out and drill on certain lands for uh, oil or natural gas. Next, continued shipping reforms. And lastly, expanded export assistance and tailored workforce training. Now, addressing the priorities for just one industry can advance the full supply chains too. For example, U.S. oil and gas production remains stymied due to an inconsistent assessment and regulatory environment in federal and some state spaces. And I have to interject here as I think he's right on. Whether you think the cause, the main cause of climate change is the production of fossil fuels 
is at this moment in geopolitics and world history irrelevant from the need that is extended to the American population and around the world, the need for continued fossil fuel production. Europe has historically depended, especially in the last 10-15 years, on Russian oil and natural gas. Russia invades Ukraine, European Union, then sanctions Russia, yet they still allow Russian oil and natural gas. And that's starting to get closed off depending on the country. This is continued on top of all the stimulus spending into economies around the world, increasing those inflationary pressures. And this is at the last moment that uh, the United States, from a policy perspective, needs to be saying that fossil fuels have no way, have no place in our, our future as a country. This, this is not the time to be making that grand effort to a transition to complete renewable energy. My view on energy, just a quick blip here. This is a imagine a basket and there's a lot of different eggs in that basket and you pull from each of them when you want one. This is how energy resources should be viewed. We should have a holistic approach to our energy resources, including renewables like wind, solar, geothermals, name them, and including reliable energy sources like oil and natural gas. So continuing on from Menino, and he writes, accounting for approximately 80% of the U.S. power today, a curbed oil and gas industry hinders the agriculture, manufacturing, and logistics to produce, process, and transport resources worldwide. Perhaps foreign to the international aid community, these domestic policy conversations, i.e. interstate pipelines, agricultural commodity credits, or port improvements, all these take on a new importance. Recognizing the conditions are underway for an unequaled food supply challenge, the discussion might not, must not only focus on cause-oriented solutions, but furthermore engage and support the industry partners to maintain them. The common mission for countering famine is not only admirable, but obtainable, and more so by deliberately meeting and leveraging a U.S. private sector capable of affording the foundation toward lasting global food security. And this is kind of the overall arching point of Menino's article. It's that the United States has can play a tremendous role in countering global food insecurity by uh, political administrations reducing the regulations and allowing the private sector to uh, be more uh, capable of driving energy production domestically to meet all these global needs. So with the recommendations and the effects in the United States for this global food crisis, the international community as well is attempting to come together to find a way to where they can spend some money on how they could address the global food crisis, according to the World Bank and the WhiteHouse.gov. In the face of multiple crises, the World Bank is deploying short and long-term responses to boost food and nutrition security, reduce risk, and strengthen food systems. Now, on May 18th, a couple months ago, uh, the World Bank announced its actions uh, it plans to take for part of a comprehensive global response to the ongoing food security crisis. With up to $30 billion existing in new projects of areas of agriculture, nutrition, social protection, water, and irrigation, this financing will include efforts to encourage food and fertilizer production, enhance food systems, facilitate greater trade, and support vulnerable households and producers. Uh, the World Bank Group and G7 Presidency uh, co-convened the Global Alliance uh, for Food Security on May 19th, and that aims to catalyze an immediate and concerted response 
to the unfolding global hunger crisis. And according to WhiteHouse.gov, the Biden administration, President Biden and G7 leaders uh, will announce that they will contribute over $4.5 billion to address global food security, over half of which will come from the United States. President Biden uh, will announce $2.76 billion in additional U.S. government funding commitments to help protect the world's most vulnerable populations and mitigate the impacts of Russia's unprovoked and unjustified war in Ukraine on growing food insecurity and malnutrition. These investments will support efforts in over 47 countries and regional organizations to support regional plans to address increasing needs. So from a fiscal perspective, the United States is certainly putting uh, up the dollars to uh, alleviate the pain of a food crisis. But if we go back to Menino's comments on just energy production and how that affects the production of other items like commodities like wheat or uh, fertilizer for crops and so forth, there are more ways that we can, more policies that we can implement to help counter uh, such a food crisis. And this kind of brings us to our conclusion of an example of what can happen with a food insecure scenario in a country and how that could create further instability. I want to give you an example that's happened in the last few days. Uh, The nation of Sri Lanka has an almost perfect ESG rating of 98 on a scale of 100. It's according to World Economics. Uh, The ESG is an just a acronym stating for environment, social, and governance. And this is a way a country can be rated on how well it's uh, applying policies towards these different these different issues. Environmental protections, um, a thriving society in terms of access to certain um, societal goods, and as well as their government and lack of corruption, etc. So Sri Lanka has a very, very high score according to this scale. But the government, which had forced the nation to achieve that virtue set signaling target in recent years collapsed over the weekend because it led the country into a self-declared bankruptcy, leaving it unable to purchase adequate supplies of fuel and feed its population. Thousands of angry Sri Lankans stormed the presidential residence over the weekend, forcing President Gotabaya Rajapska to step down and reportedly flee the country. Now, should current trends and global energy supplies continue, Sri Lanka could end up just being a harbinger of larger things to come around the rest of the world in the months and years ahead. Now, somewhat ironically, in an analysis of the full ESG rankings linked, uh, it shows that many of the nations with those highest scores are developing nations with the highest degrees of famine risk. Haiti, as an example, it's got an ESG score of 99 while the well-fed United States stands far down on the list just over 58. The point that we can kind of draw out of this example in Sri Lanka is that people will revolt if their basic needs are not being met. And a primary reason because they're not being met is an incompetent government. People won't stand for that. It really doesn't matter what kind of government system you have. Now, the response from the government, that depends entirely on the country. You wouldn't imagine seeing... Uh, President Xi Jinping stepping down or fleeing the country if thousands or even millions of Chinese citizens uh, started to protest. Matter of fact, they they go about it quite a bit different way. The point I'm making here is that this kind of country or even regional instability 
could create uh, further challenges and risks to the United States and our interests abroad, not necessarily to our borders, though that certainly could be an issue, say the instability of certain Central and uh, certain Central American countries. But imagine our partners in certain regions that we depend on for whether it's manufacturing or certain goods. And now because of um, a government's inability to provide those basic needs with a global food crisis on its hands, that creating instability in the country, trickling over into the region, and that definitely would affect the United States. Compared to us actually experiencing you know, a shortage of bread on our grocery shelves, we'd certainly experience uh, challenges from a regional inst- instability perspective and how that could affect our geopolitical policies, both with our partners and our adversaries around the world. So from a most likeliest course of action, I think countries with weaker governance will experience more chaos in their societies as food supply chains become you know, further tightened in the coming months. The most dangerous course of action I could assess would be that multiple governments fail in a single region, and that leads to an outbreak of hostilities that the United States could be drawn into potentially. So th- as always, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this topic, and I think there's certainly more challenges to see in the coming months and years as we all are pulling out of the covid lockdowns, supply chain disruptions, uh, inflationary issues that we're all dealing with, with the billboard on every street, on every corner that's advertised as a gas station paying uh, exorbitant amounts for our gasoline. And I do hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker, and this is Brief Before Impact.